Hey, I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of Press On. I'm Aaron Rios, and I'm so glad that you're with me today. Hey, have you had a chance to listen to my new worship EP? It's called Hiding Place, and you can find it on Spotify, on Apple iTunes, and everywhere else music is sold. Why don't you go check it out? Leave a review. Share it with your friends. I believe that the songs on this EP are songs for such a time as the season we are living in. I pray it blesses you. Be sure to visit Aaron on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Like and share your favorite episodes, which are now available on all podcast platforms, including the Charisma Podcast Network. And consider becoming a financial partner by supporting this ministry. Visit AaronRios.com for more details. I believe that God is getting ready to move on rebellious hearts. I really believe that those that are walking contrary, that are walking against God, away from God, I believe that God is getting ready to revive and move among the rebellious. Welcome to Press On with your host, Aaron Rios. We pray you are enriched, encouraged, and inspired to run the race and to press on towards the cause of Christ. Hey, I want to welcome you back to another episode of Press On. I'm Aaron Rios, your host. Thank you for tuning in. Can I encourage you to please download this podcast, share it with as many people as possible. You can share the link. You can share it through Apple, through Spotify, through any platform where podcasts are available. God has really placed some heavy messages on my heart, and I'm believing by His Spirit that it's going to reach the masses and it's going to reach the audience that it is intended to reach. And so I thank you for being among those uh, listening, and I hope and pray and believe being ministered to, strengthened and enriched and encouraged to press on towards the prize, towards the call, towards the cause of Christ. Amen. I want to talk to you today about the rebellious. Is there a tinge of rebellion in your heart, or perhaps you're in a household, in a job, in a school, where there are those that are in opposition to leadership? I think it's pretty evident when we scroll through social media and the news that we're living in a time of great rebellion unlike ever before. This is biblical. The Bible does tell us in the final days people will be rebellious. And there's such a sense of rebellion, such a rejection of authority, such an unwillingness to fall in line and walk in a season of submission. I say season of submission because there's a lot of people that are called to leadership, just not right now. Now they're in a season of serving, of upholding the leaders that are under them. And the truth is, leaders are always still following somebody. There's always somebody of influence in their life, a true leader, a true godly leader. There's got to be someone of great influence in their life. There has to be someone who can continue to develop them. So nobody is ever in an ultimate point of authority. Uh, And if you do find someone in an ultimate point of authority, they're typically a dictator. That shouldn't be in the house of God, and that should not be a culture uh, among Christians. But I want to talk specifically about the rebellion that Moses encountered. I believe that God is getting ready to move on rebellious hearts. I really believe that those that are walking contrary, that are walking against God, away from God, that are uh, creating factions, that are creating division, uh, those that are in opposition to the will of God, the prodigals, um, the people that have just lost a sensitivity, 
I believe that God is getting ready to revive and move among the rebellious. This is good news. I don't want you to lose faith or confidence that that loved one or that person that you've been trying to minister to or trying to witness to is past the point of being reached. Instead, I want you to press in. I want you to dig in your heels and say, no, God, I'm gonna be for, I'm gonna be a little obstinate myself and I'm gonna rebel against what the voices are telling me that this person can't be reached and I'm gonna incline my ear to your spirit that says nobody is outside of your reach. There isn't anyone that God cannot reach, that God cannot turn their story, that God cannot save. So there is gonna be a sense of rebellion incited maybe in some of you, the listener, uh, to begin to rebel against the lies. The lie that the day of grace is for everyone except that particular person that really needs it. I believe God's grace can reach uh, into the deepest, the darkest, into the lowest and the highest. Nobody's outside of God's reach. So let's go ahead and let's talk a little bit about this man named Kor that we find in Numbers chapter 16. Uh, I'm gonna focus on verses two through four and then verses 31 through 34 and then quickly we're gonna break this down. It says, and they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel. 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown, and they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone far enough for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? So let's go ahead and jump ahead to verse 31, and then I'm gonna actually read until 33. And it says, then it came about as he finished speaking all these words that the crowned that was under them split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. This is a heavy word. This is a heavy passage, but it has a light at the end of the tunnel and we're gonna get there but we have to first address Korah and his life of rebellion. Because I believe that God is preparing to call the rebellious back to himself. God can turn the heart of the rebellious. And I believe we're gonna see a revival and a restoration of prodigals. God is gonna make himself known in the hearts and the lives of your families, of your friends, of your community, but there is responsibility attached to it. We must be people who are sensitive to the voice of God. We have to be people who are willing to pay the price, sowing in tears, people that are gonna labor in prayer and in praise. So let's go ahead and begin looking at Numbers chapter 16, because it begins the way a lot of passages begin throughout scripture. It begins in verse one, chapter 16, breaking down the lineage of Korah. And I always appreciate when I see a bunch of names listed out in scripture. Often many of us will just plow through it. I do too, and half the names I cannot even pronounce. But it says here in verse one of 16, now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Perleth, the son of Reuben, took 
action. I got to stop right there because I want to encourage somebody today that God knows your lineage. God knows your mama. God knows your daddy. God knows your great granddaddy, your grandpa. God knows your lineage. He knows what you've been cut from. He knows who you belong to. He knows the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties, the things that you've had to persevere through. God knows can't read this passage and overlook the fact that the lineage and the heritage is recognized for both good and bad. And what you do matters. And those you represent matter. And your offspring matters. And the people around you matter. And even if you don't sense or see a mighty move of God in your generation, moving around you, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, stand. Be courageous and be bold. Know that your life is stringed together with the lives of others, some righteous, some unrighteous. But would you be the righteous one to stand in your moment? So it goes on to talk about the rebellion or the coup that's being incited here. As it mentions here in verse 2, they rise up against Moses. I don't know how familiar you may be with Korah. So I want to share a little bit of backstory on, on Korah. Korah was uh, one of the great grandchildren of Levi. Levi was the son of Jacob, the patriarch. Levi had three sons. His three sons was Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. Now, each of these children uh, and their clans, their families, served as Levitical priests, okay? So remember that Jacob had 12 children, and the 12 sons made up the 12 various tribes, and those tribes all together make up the nation of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob birthed those 12 tribes. In fact, later on in Numbers, when they enter into the promised land, each tribe is going to be allotted territory for them to rule over. They're going to be given all, actually 11 tribes are, one of the tribes, the tribe of Levi, they do not receive land their inheritance is a little bit different. In Deuteronomy 18, we're told that their inheritance is prestigious, for their inheritance is the presence of the Lord because they have been called to minister to God. They have been given a special place. So Korah, he's the grandson of Kohath, and his tribe in particular was a very special tribe. So let's break down what these tribes did because the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites were called into service in the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the temporary housing of God's presence. Uh, it was a tent, sometimes known as a tent of meeting, but it was the temporal location where God's presence would dwell. That's the place where Moses would go into and commune with God. We're told that uh, Daniel, um, excuse me, we're told that Joshua would go in there and commune with God. Uh, and so within there, you had various aspects of the temple. Uh, you had the, the table of showbread and you had the Ark of the Covenant. So this is a serious responsibility. And there's different aspects to the tabernacle. The Kohathites, they were in charge of caring for the most holy aspects of the sanctuary. These are the things that were sanctified and set apart. They were responsible for that. Um, the Gershonites, they were responsible for the fittings, the fixtures, the curtains, the ropes, the coverings. And then the Merarites had a responsibility of maintaining uh, the pillars and the bases, the foundational aspects of the tabernacle. 
Remember now, the, the Israelites often moved around, and so this had to be broken down and set back up frequently. Now, here's where it gets interesting, because the Gershonites and the Merorites, they were prescribed ox carts in order to transport these items. Aaron, why are you telling me all this? Get to the point here. I thought we were talking about rebellion. I'm getting there. Because the Kohathites, uh, the clan from, from where Korah comes from, they weren't given ox carts. And their labor was different. They were required to carry on their shoulders their aspect of the tabernacle. Now, I want you to consider this. Day in and day out, the weight of responsibility and labor, the frustration, the being on a journey at first. Some of us know what it's like. We start off with excitement and with zeal to do something for God and you're doing it. And then all of a sudden the joy and the energy is sucked out of it. And now you just find yourself going through the motions and what once brought you joy has become labor intensive and it has become a weighty responsibility and it's lost the, it's lost the pleasure. And it's in that that the ingredients of a rebellious heart can be birthed. I wanna ask you, does serving God still please you? Coming out of a year like 2019 and 2020 and being disappointed with profit this and profit that and hearing this word and that word, have you lost a little bit of zeal? Have you lost a little bit of excitement? Have you lost a little bit of passion? Has service to the Lord become a tedious labor that you're bearing upon your neck, bearing upon your shoulders? You seem to be praying, but you're not getting results. You're going to church, but life still seems to be going down the tube. I wonder if you've been walking it out, but you're not getting the results that you expected. And because of that, the heart that was once so eager to serve God has now become the breeding ground of a rebellious heart. Frustration can drive you to dissatisfaction. And I believe this could be where Korah and his clan just may be. The community has a vision, but it differs a little bit uh, from the vision that maybe Korah had. Uh, he thought it would look a certain way. Perhaps being called and set apart to work with God in such a holy manner got to his head just a bit. And he thought, you know, I'm pretty special. God lets me handle the holy sanctified items. Maybe I should be able to call some shots too not being able to accept my place or my lot in life or in ministry. I see some people excelling. I see some people that are being glorified. I see some people that are rising to the top while others are laboring hard. Some of you pastors, you've been keeping your churches going in the middle of a difficult season and you've been going with minimal resources and minimal tools and a minimal congregation and you scroll online and you see all these glorious setups and all of these glorious churches and you wonder, where's mine? Bitterness and rebellion can start to creep in. So what happens? Well, as scripture outlines here, the motivation to overthrow is now in play. The motivation to overthrow is now in play. And as I keep reading in verse, uh, six, in, in verse two of chapter 16, I find some interesting uh, language that's been laid out here. Check this out. It goes on to tell us as they're banding together to oppose Moses, the language here says this, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. Now, don't move too quickly because when I read that, my mind immediately went to Genesis chapter 6-4. What happened in Genesis chapter 6-4? We are told in Genesis chapter 6-4, in those days, the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and bore children by them. 
These were the mighty men of old, excuse me, the heroes of old, the mighty men of renown. We are told that these are the heroes of old, the mighty men of renown. Men of renown. Now, without getting too deep into what this was, what are we told in Genesis chapter 6, 4? It tells us that when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, they saw them, they looked beautiful. And so the sons of God came into the daughters of men, took those which they pleased, and there they bore giants. These were the heroes of old, the men of renown. Men of renown. Genesis chapter 6, 4 introduces us to the Nephilim. Uh, and without getting lost in the weeds, we can all agree who these Nephilim were. While we may not be able to agree in who these Nephilim were, were they giants, were they half-breeds, were they the sons of Seth, sons of Cain, you know, lineage, various lineages. What we can all agree upon is this, is that they were wicked. That seems to be a constant. And I find it interesting that the same language, because the same person who penned Genesis most likely penned the rest of the Pentateuch. Uh, so you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and then eventually Deuteronomy. So there's common language. And so there's a linguistic cue here that whatever occurred in Genesis, the title renown was placed upon people that are recognized, people that are in authority, people that uh, seem to stand out, have a greater potential of falling into line with wickedness and rebellion and doing things that are contrary to God's plan and to God's heart. And we have to be careful that those of us that serve in the call, those of us that serve in the church, those of us that are serving others, that we do not allow ourselves to get puffed up and think to ourselves, I deserve better than this. I should be able to do more than this. What's going on? How come, how come this is my portion and my lot? I deserve something else. I'm prestigious. I have a little renown. I'm, I'm a man of renown. I'm a person who should be recognized. I'm important. Graduated from school. Don't you know how much money I make? It seems to be, and scripture would affirm, that rebellion puts you in league with the enemy. Rebellion creates class wars. I noticed that as this begins to roll out, there's a differentiation made between two classes of people. There's Israel and then those who are in the rebellious camp. See, the rebellious heart creates division within the community. It creates division within the house. It creates two classes of people, the good people and the better people. The rebellious heart says, I know a better way and who's willing to follow me on the better way. The rebellious heart says, I, I could do this, a better method. The rebellion heart resists the plans that God has. Why? Because sometimes the plan that God has doesn't look as good as the plan that maybe you have. But it doesn't mean that you have the good plan. It just means that you don't know God's heart and mind. It means that you don't see every angle. It means that what looks pretty on the outside could be rotten on the inside. But because all we can see often is on the outside, we begin to resist we begin to despise what God is doing. We begin to lose our purpose as to why we're even there. How does Moses respond? I love this. 16.4 says he falls on his face. Falling on the face, the posture of humility, posture of intercession. It's impossible to stand in pride and arrogance and rebellion 
and simultaneously be on your face in humility and repentance. The posture of humility is the posture that invites God in and it's the heart that's willing to enter in. It's, it's the antithetical posture of rebellion and arrogance and pride. Rebellion is a heart condition in as much as humility can be. And while the posture of humility invites God in humbly and is willing to enter in, the rebellious heart says, yo, God, here I am. You can come on in. Go ahead and come on in if you want. Uh, it's the beckoning God to come near without the willingness to come near to God. We've got to watch out for the rebellious heart. We got to watch out for the rebellious heart that'll stand in a church service, lift its hands, lift their hands and cry out to God to come to them. But they're unwilling to leave their sin, unwilling to leave their own idea and plan. That's arrogant. That's rebellious. So how does God, so how does God deal with this? If you look through verses five through seven, Moses prescribes as the man believing it is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the call to bring the fire in the offering. Why? Bring the fire in the offering, let's come around God, and then God will pick, God will choose. God's not my buddy that I can just casually stroll in and out of his presence. We, we, we are beckoned and summoned into the presence of the king. Moses understands this. And just because I've experienced a little bit of favor and a little bit of grace and just because God allows me to serve him does not give me some great liberty to come prancing in and out of his throne room as if I was just a clown. How many ministers and how many leaders and people that have been touched by God in some aspect, all of a sudden they feel some, some liberty to float in and out of God's presence as if they were a court jester. It's not who we are. We're children of the king. But he is the king, right? And the king demands fire and an offering. This is what Moses prescribes. Why fire? What, what, what is that all about? That's verses five through seven. Moses says, bring a censer of fire and, and bring your offering. And then whichever one God accepts, that's, that's the leader. And it takes a lot of humility for Moses to even present that option. Now understand at any point, Korah could have changed his mind. Korah could have said, hey, Moses, I'm so sorry. I had a lapse of judgment. I don't know why I'm acting like this. Listen, I've been carrying these tents on my shoulders. We're tired, we're worn out. We've been in the desert. Listen, I apologize, but no, there's actually a pressing in here. Why? The fire reveals the motivation of a person. The fire, it, it is a symbol that of revelation of intention. So fire reveals your motivation and your intention and your offering will then reveal who you truly are. I think 1 Corinthians 3.13 puts it better. It says, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. Fire tests, fire reveals, but there's a revelation of who you are. So the fire shows the, the revelation of intent and purpose but your offering, what you give to God is also revelatory. Those who sow sparingly shall reap sparingly. People that are unwilling to give to God do not really know God. 
They're not willing because they don't trust God and they don't know his character and they don't know his nature. They don't trust him with his money. They don't trust God with their time. They don't trust God with their resources. They don't trust God with their talent because they don't really know that God is trustworthy. They don't really know God like they should. Moses is all about exposure. This is good news for you because God sees it. God sees what you're going through. God sees the rebellion. God sees those that are kicking against the goads. God sees those that are in opposition of your success. God sees those that are backbiting and gossiping. He sees it all. The fire and the offering reveal it all. What are you willing to bring to God? What does the fire speak for you? You actually have insight already. God has given you the ability to judge your own heart and consider uh, areas in your life that maybe you are being resistant to what God is trying to do. Maybe God is calling you to change something up. Maybe God is calling you to advance in a different direction. Maybe God is calling you to just be still and walk in submission, walk in humility. What is God calling from you this season? So when we get to verse 33, we see that the ground has swallowed up Korah. As I've already read, judgment is enacted in the life of Korah, swallowed up. I found this form of judgment very interesting. I wanted to read up on it just a bit more. And what I discovered in the rawest sense is the earth eating up the clay. It's the type of judgment that the rebellious heart faces being consumed. Rebellion has the way of consuming you. And it doesn't just consume you, it drags you away from the presence of God and the presence of community. The word that's used in this passage is sheol, the grave. Korah and his community and everyone around him are consumed and dragged to the place of the dead. This could feel very dark as I come to a conclusion here, but what became of Korah? Well, it would appear they were wiped off the face of the map until we get to Numbers. Numbers 26, 11 says, but the sons of Korah did not die. You know, as I sat and I meditated on Korah's rebellion and then Korah's fate, the earth swallowing up the rebellious community, we would later find out that not only were the children spared, but the children would go through restoration of purpose they would be reinstated in a place of fellowship within the community. They would be restored. We find in Psalms 46, one through three, it says, God is our refuge and our strength. Have you read the Psalms before? A very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. Though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling, thereof, Selah. Do you know that is one of 11 Psalms written and dedicated to the sons of Korah? Did you know that? Psalms of giving thanks, Psalms of declaring God's faithfulness, Psalms that, uh, that speak of the goodness of God. I titled this message, Rebellious Rising, because I believe that 
the rebellion that was swallowed up by the earth was actually a seed that was buried and planted that would eventually birth a generation of righteousness, a generation that would once again know God and fear God, a generation that would turn away from the rebellion in their hearts into submission and service. You know, when I look back over the last year, I see the devil thought he could divide your home and the devil thought he could divide the church and the devil thought he could divide the community. The devil thought he could stir something up in your heart and make you begin to question, is it really worth it? Is the labor of carrying this burden on my shoulders really worth it? You know, I could lead my life a little bit better. I could do things differently. Why am I even taking myself through this? But I hear the voice of the Lord say, that the rebellious are beginning to rise up in a whole new way because the spirit of God is gonna begin to move on them. The spirit of God is gonna begin to move on the prodigals. And when there was once rebellion, there's now gonna be humility, submission, and service in a whole new way because what I find to be a character in the rebellion are those who are called to something, but they're not giving into it. Oh, they're walking on an alternate path. But I believe in the coming days and the weeks and the months that the alternate paths are going to merge back onto the path that God has called and laid out. Would you believe by faith that the rebellious are going to be rising up, rising up from those communities of rebellion, rising up from those alternative paths that they thought they could walk in a different direction that God had for them, but God's calling them back to himself. God is calling back the prodigals. God is calling the rebellious. God is breathing new hearts and new minds, and we're going to begin to see a generation, a remnant rising up, yielded, to the cause of Christ. Let's pray for them right now. Father, every single one of us have the potential to be rebellious. Every one of us have the potential of walking an alternative path, something out of our own heart and our own imagination because sometimes the things that we're called to, the things that you lead us into are difficult and wearisome and burdensome. But I also know that you promise us rest and you promise calm waters. So if some of us have been following you, God, and we've yet to experience the calm or the rest or the peace, then that tells me two things. One, be still. And two, be patient. Sometimes it's hard to be patient, oh Lord, when we haven't seen your intervention. But I'm reminded as I read this, you see and you know. God, I would ask for the courage and the boldness, Lord. I would ask for the strength and the grace for myself and for everyone who is listening to walk a yielded life. Father, to begin to believe in confidence and in faith that those around us that are moving in rebellion those of us that have rejected, those that have rejected your plan, rejected you. God, I, I believe it's not too late for them. Father, that we would assume a posture like Moses, humility on our faces before you, inviting you in and being humble enough to move into where you've called us. God, salvation is not the end all. Salvation is the beginning point. When we're saved, 
that's the starting point. The life that follows is a life of action and a life of movement. And God, you're calling us into something. And God, I pray that you would give courage and strength to everyone who's listening and the faith to believe that, Father, though the earth swallowed up the rebellious, like seeds planted, something will rise. And like Korah's offspring, who birthed songs of praise and hope and confidence, I believe that the future holds hope and confidence and praise for each one of us. We're believing you for this. I want to be faithful and I want to be confident that God's not done. We give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If today's message encouraged you to continue running the race, we invite you to share this message with others. Until next time, keep pressing on.